0: everything you got Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot Wouldn't you like to get away All those nights when you've got the lights The check is in the mail And your little angel hung the cat up by his tail And your third fiance didn't show Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name And they're always glad you came You want to go where you can see I troubles are all the same You want to be where everybody knows your name Roll out of bed, Mr. Coffee's dead The morning's looking bright Your shrink ran off to Europe and didn't even write. And your husband wants to be a girl. Be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. Jesus, we do ask that uh, we would preach you. God, let us preach your word. In his name we pray. Amen. How many of uh, y'all used to watch Cheers? Yeah? Yeah? And how many of you used to fantasize about, you know, just leaving your business and running off to Cheers? You could just hang out with um, Norm and Cliff and Sam and, and Woody, yeah, I, I used to, I did, I, I do, I, I still do, and I'm a pastor, I work at a church, my business is the church. Pastor Chuck Swindoll wrote the following, the neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church, It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. Well, you know, the best counterfeits, the very best counterfeits, are the things that are closest to the thing that they, in fact, counterfeit. But if you know that they're not the thing that they counterfeit, then they're really not counterfeits. They're signs. And as we discovered in the last few weeks, the Gospel of John refers to a miraculous wet bar Produced by Jesus as a sign. The first of the Lord's signs. Uh, Scripture warns that wine is a mocker and yet Jesus turns it into a sacrament saying take and drink and do it in remembrance of me. And so as as I hope you know, and you can go back and listen to these sermons if you don't know and you weren't here. But for the last uh, few weeks, we've been preaching out of John chapter two, verses one through 11, and the fact that Jesus first sign in the Gospel of John is uh, taking some bath water that was used for the ritual uh, cleansing of the Jews according to the law, uh, taking that water and turning it into 180 gallons of high quality wine at a party where some people, a wedding party, where some people had already drank too much. John makes it clear that this wedding party is on the seventh day. It's a sign of the kingdom. The wedding supper of the Lamb where the bride of Christ becomes one with her groom forever. The wedding party is a sign of the kingdom. And the fact that Jesus makes the wine is the manifestation of his glory. And his glory is mercy that flows from his cross. In the revelation, according to John, in the revelation, Jesus' cross is revealed to be a wine press. At the cross, we surrender that old, judgmental, self centered self. We surrender our sin. Jesus takes our sin and crushes it with, within himself, uh, bleeding new wine. His mercy transforms our sin into his mercy, wine. You know, people serve wine at parties because it helps people forget themselves and their business and their judgments and all their calculations. The thing that wrecks a party is people stuck in themselves and their business, people judging and keeping score and trading favors and jockeying for position. That just wrecks a party. But a great party, great party is love and freedom. Like a great marriage is love and freedom. Well, alcohol helps for a few hours, but if you come to rely on it, it, it mocks you. It points to freedom, but then it enslaves you to, to itself. It's the sign, not the substance. The substance is Christ, the blood of Christ. Remember, it, it neutralizes those My Life scorecards that we looked at several weeks ago. It's the judgment of grace that judges all judgments, the abrogation, the cassation of All of our decisions, our judgment, it cancels out our certificate of debt. Jesus is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world with his blood. So scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. When the the spirit fell on the disciples in Acts chapter two, they forgot themselves and praised God in ecstasy. And remember what the bystanders said? They're drunk, must be drunk. And that's what they said to Jesus. He's a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners, sinners like prostitutes, sinners. Well, Jesus was never drunk with wine. And yet his blood is 100% wine, new wine, grace, the life of the party. And so last week I said, you know, if we were really following Jesus, I mean, we might look a little less like legislators and politicians and a little more like Sam and Woody on on Cheers. The kingdom of heaven is a party and church is to anticipate that party. On the seventh day, Jesus goes to a wedding party and turns water into 180 gallons of high-quality wine. If Jesus is so sweet at a secular party where some people have already drunk too much, imagine how sweet he's gonna be when he goes to church. John 2. He goes to a party and now he goes to church, and I mean church. Baptist General Conference, Presbyterian General Assembly, the Vatican, I mean church, the ecclesia, the people called out in their very nicest building, the temple in Jerusalem. This is actually a a model of the temple, And uh, this picture I I took when in Israel, uh, that whole platform is where uh, the temple used to be. You see, it was absolutely immense. At Passover, at Passover time, there was literally a river of blood that flowed off of that temple mount near where the Dome of the Rock Mosque is now, and down into that Kidron Valley, a river of lamb's blood flowing down the Kidron Valley and meeting the Valley of Gehenna in the valley below. Well, 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 Jesus goes to the party in John chapter two and makes wine, then this. After this, the wine at the party, He went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip, he made a whip, making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple." I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He goes to church. Wow. Wow. So what's the moral of that story? Seems pretty clear to me. Don't invite Jesus to church. Because, <laughs> I mean, he'll mess with your business. Don't invite Jesus to church lest you plan on getting your temple cleansed. Dang. I mean, that's quite a contrast to the, to the wedding party, huh? In all three of the other gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple just before they crucify him, and and that kind of makes some sense if you think about it, right? But in John's gospel, he does it here at the start. Some scholars postulate that Jesus did it twice. Most of them argue, though, that he did it once, and even though John knew that Jesus did it at the end of his ministry, he tells the story here to make a theological point. You see, John's just not that into chronology. Well no matter when or how or whatever, how many times Jesus cleansed the temple, I do think John is very intentional about putting this story right here where it is. Uh, Maybe wine at the wedding feast and wrath in the temple are like two sides of one reality. One judgment. These two stories at the end of six days in the Gospel of John an awful lot like two stories at the end of time in John's revelation. And the one other place in all of scripture where Jesus is pictured with such incredible fury divides those two stories at the end of the revelation. In Revelation 19 and 20, the word of God with eyes of fire, Jesus, he he tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He's the Passover lamb and he sits on the throne of judgment, Passover, when the blood flowed from the throne into the valley. You know, at Passover time, there may have been as many as, or more than two million people in Jerusalem, two two million Jews there. For the Passover passing through those temple courts Courts, you saw them the size of a few football fields So this thing, um, it happened at Passover And so cleansing the temple was no small event And man, Jesus must have just been an awesome sight Why was he so angry? Consumed with, with zeal In one of the other Gospels, it's recorded that he said, my father's house will uh, be a house of prayer for all nations. You see, the the merchants and the money changers, it seems, had moved their their stalls from the Kidron Valley into the court of the Gentiles. So in the name of business, they kept the nations from prayer. That's bad business practice, bad business policy, but John doesn't really mention that here. In two of the other Gospels, Jesus calls the merchants thieves. According to historians, the temple rulers were running a racket. They collected a temple tax to pay for the building, but would only accept a certain kind of currency, so folks were forced to go to money changers who worked for the temple, who then took an exorbitant cut. Worshippers were also required to sacrifice certain animals, but the animals had to be inspected by temple inspectors. Unless you purchased your animal at the temple, odds were slim to none that it would pass inspection. And animals sold in the temple could cost about 20 times as much as those sold outside. They were running a racket in the name of God, using God to, to get his stuff. 400 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church sold indulgences to pay for St. Peter's Basilica. And indulgence uh, is a ticket out of purgatory. They were running a racket in, in the name of God to, to, to get his stuff. A few weeks ago, I was working out in the basement watching TV and feeling kind of low. This TV evangelist came on and said he'd send me an anointed green prosperity prayer handkerchief if I just emailed to him my address. And so between sets, I did. And he sent me my green prosperity prayer handkerchief along with a letter telling me it hadn't been anointed yet, activated yet. (laughs) I just needed to touch it to my forehead, place it on my billfold overnight, write how much cash I I needed on the front of it and then send it back with an offering because the more I give to God, the more he'll give to me. The letter said. Now, before you laugh, let me say, in the book of Acts, there, there really are these amazing stories of, like, miracles coming from handkerchiefs that touch the Apostle Paul. And I'm telling you, God really will use just about anything. He, he will. So you better not tell him what he cannot do and what he cannot use, especially when it's accompanied by faith. But I didn't send my miracle prayer handkerchief back because I was starting to think it... it, it, it It might be a racket. This is my green miracle prayer (laughs) handkerchief. Wanna touch it? (laughs) You can. Only five bucks. (laughs) And why not? I mean, why not? You, You put money in the offering plate Is that any different? You put money in the offering plate, and if you're expecting to get something back for it, I mean, really, is that that any different? Famous missionary and martyr Jim Elliott used to say this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. No fool, And, and that's true. He is no fool. He's a businessman, good, wise, prudent businessman. But is that substantially different than the green miracle prosperity handkerchief? Maybe smarter, maybe shrewder, but is it really any different? Is that what makes a Christian? I mean, better business sense. Is that what got you saved? We preachers say stuff like this. Who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to have their sins forgiven, their debts canceled out? Well, then just come forward. Say this prayer. Sign up for this class. Do this thing. Well, I'm telling you, if if we preachers can get you into heaven, it's only good business sense to agree with whatever we ask of you. And if we need to raise money for our salaries or buildings, it's easy for us to tack that on to the deal like, you know, a dividend or a sales commission. Look, you get God, God gets you, and and, 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 uh, I get a little commission. Like a (laughs) stockbroker. Or a pimp. I think most Americans think that the problem in the temple that day was bad business. But John just, of course, Jesus is saying business. Just business. He says, you shall not make my father's house a house of business. Imperion in Greek, it's where we get our word emporium. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. Trade. And here's an interesting question what would we ever have to trade? You know, God prescribed that the Jews give sacrifices and offerings kind of like I used to prescribe to my kids that they give kisses and and presents at Christmas time, but those kisses didn't pay for anything. And I was the one that bought the gifts that they gave. The Jews offered stuff like wine and, and lambs, but But it's not a trade. (laughs) Only God can make a lamb. Paul writes, who has given a gift to him that it might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. What could you ever trade with God? For that matter, what could you ever trade with anyone? Anything you think you own is stolen property. And you say, hey, dude, um, I bought my house. I bought my house from the builder. Well, where did the builder get the wood? Oh, he got it from the lumber mill. He bought it from the lumber mill. Well, where did the lumber mill get the trees? Only God can make a tree. And so he went to the forest, he cut it down, and God owns the forest. He stole that tree. It's stolen property. And you say, whoa, whoa, Okay, I get your point. But you see, I paid for the lumber mill's effort to, to steal the trees. Okay, but who paid for, uh, who, who made their effort? That's what I'm saying. And who made your effort with which you trade for their effort? And and maybe you say, well, my money represents my choices. Well, who made your chooser that chose your choices? Who chose or who made you? I mean, in all seriousness, what do you have to trade that does not belong to God? You see, everything, everything is grace. It's all gift. And that means our entire economy is nothing but fraudulent sales commissions on grace. God's grace. See, it's not just TV evangelists and preachers using God and making a profit on grace. It's anyone and everyone that thinks they own anything and thus could trade anything for anything. I have no credit. Only debt. Only debt. See, maybe in a very deep and profound way, all of our business is bad business. For our business assumes that we made ourselves and own ourselves. And that's believing the lie from the mouth of the snake, Eve, woman, take from the tree, and make yourself in the image of God. That's your business. Maybe all business is bad business. Unless, of course, you're doing business for another, (laughs) the owner of everything, in which case you are what the Bible calls a steward Then you don't spend your money on your business, but God's money on God's business. Well, anyway, to think that we could trade anything to get anything for ourselves is fraudulent business. It's bad business. And to think we could trade anything to get anything from God is just stupid business, which is also bad business. But to think we could trade anything to get God himself, oh, my friends, (laughs) that's something far worse. See, it's not just bad business that gets Jesus so steamed. I mean, he hung out with bad businessmen all the time, tax collectors, thieves. Never got so torqued over them. It's not just trade, but trade in his father's house. Zeal, jealousy, passion for your house has consumed me, says scripture. Zeal, for the house or zeal of the house. So, What's his father's house? I mean, is Jesus that into houses and real estate and all that kind of stuff? No. You see, that temple was more than just stone. It represented and actually was the heart of God in the midst of his people. It was the place where God communed with his bride, Christ reveals that the true temple, the true sanctuary is his body, and his body is his people, and his people are his bride. So when Jesus makes the whip and yells at the men saying, my father's house shall not be a house of trade, he's also saying, my bride shall not be a house of trade, and my body will not be a body of trade. You see, the temple is the sanctuary where Bride and groom become one body, celebrate communion, the sacrament of their covenant, but as soon as one of them mentions business or trade, it's no longer a temple, it's a brothel. See why Jesus is jealous, passionate, consumed with zeal? He goes to the wedding party in Cana and he loves it. He makes wine. He goes to his own wedding party in Jerusalem and finds that his bride has become a whore. Humanity is a harlot. Ever since Eve bought the lie and started doing business. Listen to Ezekiel. He's prophesying to Israel. He's prophesying to the people of God. I passed by you, says the Lord, and saw you flailing about in your blood. As you lay in your blood, I said to you, live and grow up like a plant of the field. You grew up and became tall and arrived at full womanhood. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. I passed by you again and looked on you. You were at the age for love. I spread the edge of my cloak over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off the blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and with sandals of fine leather. But you trusted in your own beauty and played the whore because of your fame and lavished your whorings on any passerby. How sick is your heart, says the Lord God, that you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen whore. And he's talking to us, his people, all his people. You see, whenever we sin, we prostitute. Ourselves, Selling ourselves, enslaving ourselves to an evil master. Whenever we sin, we prostitute ourselves. And whenever we think we can pay for our sins, we prostitute God. We act like we can purchase his love. And his love is his very self. He is love. You know, Jesus seemed to get along with prostitutes really well. But scribes, Pharisees, pastors and priests, they just set them off. You see, it's religious leaders like me that are in danger of the most vile prostitution, the buying and selling of God. I spread the edge of my cloak over you, says God. I covered your nakedness, I pledged myself to you. And, and we say, and how much does that cost? And, and um, God, do I have to give 10% of my income? Is that, is that gross, is that net? And um, how, how much prayer do you require? I mean, I think 20 minutes a day is, is really a lot, don't you, I mean, and, and pastor, uh, what exactly do I have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven? Oh, that's, that's tempting right there. As I told you, 26 and a half years ago, May 20, I should remember this date, huh? May twenty-eighth, 1983. Um, <laughs> Susan Coleman pledged herself to me. She gave herself and everything she had and was unconditionally and freely. That night, after a great, Wedding party, and in Jesus' day, it was during the wedding party. They went away and came back after everybody said it was a success. But after the wedding party, we consummated our covenant with communion, the sacrament of our covenant in the sanctuary of our marriage. We made love. And now, do you want to understand the passion of the Christ? Imagine. The passion and the pain of Susan, if if at that moment, immediately following that communion, I, I got up, crossed the room, fumbled for my billfold, found my billfold, pulled out $250 or so, walked back over to her, handed it to her and said, that ought to cover it. You understand? (laughs) He gives himself to you. (laughs) And you ask, how much do I owe? I ask, how much do I owe? You may say, hey, the Israelites were required to give sacrifices and and offerings. Yeah, but, but not as payment. Here's a fascinating thought. I've handed Susan far more than 250 dollars. In fact, for like 26 and a half years now, I just hand her every paycheck. I mean, and it's it's way more than 250 bucks, and you know what, she's never been offended. She's never been upset with me about that, but I never hand it to her in the bedroom. (laughs) As payment. For body and soul, and, and if I did, you see, I would desecrate our covenant, and Susan would go from bride to harlot, temple to brothel, person to commodity, living lover to body broken, and bloodshed. Do you remember that it was the religious leaders that had Jesus crucified? They, they tried to trade him for power, for control, It was to them he said, destroy this house. He didn't say he destroyed, he said, destroy this house. And they destroyed the stone temple with trade. And they destroyed the temple of Christ's body with their business. And they destroyed the bride, the people of God, by teaching her, teaching them that God could be bought. But Jesus said, destroy this house, and in three days, I will raise it up. Get the picture? Jesus goes to the wedding party in Cana and makes wine. It's a sign and it manifests his glory. Jesus goes to his own wedding party in Jerusalem. The Lord whom you seek suddenly comes to his temple. He comes to his bride and she is a harlot and yet he still makes wine. Not the sign, the substance. Not the manifestation of his glory. His glory. With that blood wine that flows from the winepress that is his cross, he washes, redeems, and sanctifies the harlot who is and always was eternally his bride. Destroy this temple with harlotry and I will raise it from the dead, my bride. Ezekiel continues. Yet I will remember my covenant with you, praise and harlot, people of God, Jerusalem. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant when I forgive all that you have done, says the Lord God. The revelation ends time ends the series of sixes end with the stories of two women two women the great harlot being destroyed and the bride of christ being revealed the people of god are in the harlot, participating in her prostitution, for Christ calls to them, come out of her, my people, and yet his people turn out to be the new Jerusalem, the temple, his bride. The harlot is of the earth. The bride comes down from heaven. The harlot is drenched, is is decked with, with jewels, she's covered with jewels, but the bride is a jewel, the harlot is the abode of demons, the bride is the abode, the residence, the dwelling place of God, the harlot is an economy. Read about it in in Revelation chapter 18. The harlot is an economy of trade. The bride is an economy of grace. The harlot is old Jerusalem, old Rome, the empires of this world, Emporion, and the bride is the new Jerusalem, the new creation. So how is that temple, that old harlot, transformed into the bride? Well, in chapters 19 and 20, between those two pictures, the word rides out with eyes of fire and a sword issuing uh, from his mouth. He tramples the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. Zeal for his house, his bride, consumes him on the cross. The wrath of God consumes God on behalf of his bride and there he turns our sins into his mercy. The word rides out and the Passover lamb is judge on the throne from which a river of blood flows. With his blood, he takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of Eve, prostitution, and transforms us from the harlot and to the bride. See, apart from his blood, we're all prostitutes. (laughs) We are. We just don't admit it. And that's too bad. Because God has this like amazing, astounding love for prostitutes. Jesus almost seems to like them best I think maybe they understand Him the most. They know what it is to be used and rejected. And so they come to His cross first. They come to His resurrection first. Like Mary the Magdalene came to His tomb first. We're all prostitutes. Religious types are usually the worst. Truth is, we're all prostitutes, but... Those that this world calls prostitutes are often the first to know it, to see it, to confess it. And and when we confess it, the truth, when we confess the truth, we see him who is the truth, Jesus. And he washes us, redeems us, sanctifies, and fills us with his blood, which is his glory. Revelation twenty-one, verse eleven. The bride has his glory. There is no created thing more beautiful or glorious. Than the harlot who's been washed in the blood of the lamb. His bride. I have a friend who many years ago, many, many years ago. Actually, I have several friends now that have been in this kind of situation. Great people. I have this one friend who many, many, many years ago was sold to a man who then... Began selling her to other men. Sometimes he made her feel wanted. And she thought maybe it was love. On many occasions since then, Jesus has appeared to her and shown her, you're you're not a harlot. You're my bride. My stunning bride. One day, several years ago, praying for her, we encountered a a demon. And the demon was attached to that evil covenant, the sale to that man. And the demon had taken that man's name. And now I know the idea is weird for some of you, so I hope you won't let it bug you or throw you off, but the demon manifested in her body and wouldn't leave. And so I took authority in the name of Jesus and demanded it to tell me, what right do you have to be there? What right do you have to be here? And it responded, I bought her. And, and I said, how much? And it told me. And then all at once, I, I had a thought. I took the cup of communion wine that was sitting on the table in front of us. I held it up before her face. The demon was absolutely terrorized. And I said, what's worth more? The money? And I said the amount. What's worth more, the the money or the blood of the only begotten son of God who was crucified on her behalf from the foundation of the world? What's worth more? And in this agonizing voice, the demon just screeched, the blood! And then, I watched Jesus Christ cleanse his temple. As my friend took the cup and drank the wine of the kingdom, the fiery and eternal judgment of the living God. You know, he's the owner of absolutely everything, and yet he paid everything for her. He's the owner of all, and yet he paid everything for you. Perhaps, perhaps, It's just so that you would see (laughs) there's nothing left to buy. (laughs) And so surrender your heart, drink His grace, and love Him in freedom as you wish. Once you see God, who is love, once we see God, who is love, we'll no longer try to buy God, who is love. We'll no longer live like a harlot but love like his bride. No business sense whatsoever. (laughs) You just give all, because he always gives all. You'll drink, till drunk, by love. So would you close your eyes? Close your eyes and just let me talk to you for a minute. Let Jesus talk to you. Because you see, in this world, you are absolutely surrounded by lies. You get what you pay for. That lie turns into hell. You get what you pay for. There's no free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. That's all a lie. You get everything for nothing. And every lunch, dinner, breakfast, is free. It's all grace. And here's the greatest lie. God is not grace. So you must make yourself in His image and earn His favor. That's the lie. So right now, don't Don't move a muscle. Don't promise a thing. And don't you dare make a deal. I mean, don't intend anything. Don't conclude anything. Don't say anything. But listen to what God is saying. I I I believe it's this. I really believe it's this. You cannot make me love you anymore. You cannot earn one drop or one drop more of my grace. I love you right now as you are, where you are, with all I am and all I have. This is what I want. I want you to believe my love. And so he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body which is given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so I ask you, what's worth more? Your sin? Your shame? Your fear? Your judgments and your calculations with which you measure yourself against others to see if you're adequate. What's worth more? Your judgment or the blood of the only begotten Son of God who was crucified on your behalf from the foundation of the world. What's worth more? The blood. The blood. And so, if with just a mustard seed of faith, you, something in you that says, yeah, the, the blood, the blood. <laughs> oh, come to the table. Tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cups. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. They're both, uh, they're, they're, they're both mercy. You know, Scripture said, zeal for your house will consume me. <laughs> you are his house. Come consume him drink till drunk by God, amen? By way of benediction, I just wanna read a quote that I've been thinking about for weeks. This is kinda benedicting the last couple months of sermons, okay? It's from an Episcopal priest named Robert Capon. Actually, Sharon quoted him too when she was preaching. I've pretty much really scoured uh, scripture, I mean, the Revelation and John, and, and I think, I think this is actually what it's saying. He writes, Bookkeeping is the only punishable offense in the kingdom of heaven. For in that happy state, the books are ignored forever, and there is only the book of life, and in that book nothing stands against you. There are no debit entries that can keep you out of the clutches of the love that will not let you go. Nobody is kicked out who wasn't already in. The only bruised backsides belong to those who insist on butting themselves into outer darkness. For if the world could have been saved by bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses, not Jesus. Heaven is Miller time. Heaven is the party in the streaming sunlight of the world's final afternoon. Heaven is when all the rednecks and all the wood butchers and all the plumbers who never showed up, all the losers who never got anything right, and all the winners who just gave up on winning simply waltz up, waltz up to the bar of judgment with full pay envelopes and get down to this serious drinking that makes the new creation go round. It is a bash. That has happened, that insists upon happening, and that is happening now. And by the sweetness of its cassation, it drowns out all the party poopers in the world. Heaven, in short, is fun. And if you don't like that, buster, you can just go to, well, you'll have to use your imagination. You'll need it. This is the only bar in town. And so may you drink until drunk by love. That is, believe the gospel and live the gospel. Amen.